murder, divorce, drugs. Our courts are full of stories, scary, sad, and hilarious. Most are tales stranger than fiction. These are true law stories, brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, the ultimate resource for customer and client video stories. On this True Law Stories, we are going to talk about some crazy cases. We're going to talk about the Son of Sam arrest, which involved Fred Schwartz here. He was one of the assistant DAs at the time in New York City. Fred, say hello. How are you? All right. And we're going to talk about the case that was the basis for the movie Goodfellas, uh, why NYPD detectives were the best that he worked with, prosecuting Robert DiBernardo, and then finally finding out what happened to him, transitioning from DA to white-collar criminal defense to civil and what that involved, and also some crazy charges of crucifixion and representing the great corruptor of Hialeah, as well as members of various South American governments. All this on True Law Stories. But remember, this is brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com, one of the best ways to grow your law practice. Your law firm is through your client stories. Go to VideoCaseStory.com where we can help you collect, craft, and deliver those all over the internet. All right, let's get started. I started out as an assistant DA in New York, first in Brooklyn, then in Queens. I was head of the Rackets Bureau in the Queens DA's office for a few years. And I also was one of the two Queens attorneys who worked on a case involving a fellow called Son of Sam. Oh, wow. uh, Who was a murderer in New York who killed people in Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. And I was there the night he was arrested. When he he was arrested, he was going out to with a semi-automatic rifle to kill people at a nightclub on Long Island. And he told us that the reason he did it was because his neighbor's dog, who was named Sam, talked to him and told him there were demons that were going to kill people all over the world by causing hurricanes and tornadoes and things of that sort. And the only way he could stop it was to provide blood for the demons. And that's why he killed all these people. So oh my gosh. That was an interesting case back when I was a young assistant DA. And I also worked on the case that was the basis for the movie Goodfellas, where the a airline a supply room was held up at Kennedy Airport and they stole a whole lot of money from that supply room. And it took us a long time. I left the office before they solved that case, but Henry Hill and some other people were the ones who were involved in that. A fellow named Vario, who they changed his name in the movie. What was that so, like? What is it like prosecuting that type of case or in trying to figure out what's going on? We had, I've worked with a lot of law enforcement agencies. The best I've worked with New York City detectives. I've worked with the FBI, the Secret Service, the IRS, DEA. New York City detectives just are so street smart, and they have such good informants that eventually they can solve most cases, particularly organized crime cases, because most organized crime people are constantly in debt because they're inveterate gamblers, and they're losing money, and they take risks because they need money. But anyway, after I left... Queens, I was recruited by the federal government, and I became the deputy attorney in charge of the Federal Organized Crime Strike Force in Miami. 
that was in 1978, when Miami was a still a little quiet, sleepy vacation town. It wasn't until two or three years later when we had the Mario boat lift and we had the cocaine cowboys shooting up Miami. But when I got to Miami, there were 12 organized crime families working in Miami because it was an open city. And there were a whole lot of interesting cases to work on. I bet. So, wow. And so how did you transition into, and you practice civil law now, correct? I, when I left the government in 1984, and I went into private practice doing, I like to say I traded my white hat for a gray one. I was defending some of the people, not the same people, except for one who I prosecuted. And it really, it's a challenge to try cases, no matter which side you try it on. It was a little lonelier uh, being a defense attorney. It was almost like the hired gun coming to town, mm -hmm. as opposed to working with a team of four or five agents from various agencies and having all of the assets of the Justice Department backing you up. But it was an interesting transition. I mentioned before that I represented I prosecuted a fellow named Robert DiBernardo. DiBernardo was allegedly a capo regime in the Gambino crime family, and he controlled the distribution of what was then considered obscenity. Now it's something you can get anywhere on the internet, but then it was <laughs> illegal. And we wanted to prove that organized crime controlled the distribution of obscenity in the United States. So I prosecuted him and I convicted him. And he was on appeal, and about a year and a half, two years later, I left the government, and I get a call from him, and he says, Fred, this is D.B. That was his nickname, D.B. for D. Bernardo. And I said, yeah, aren't you still on appeal? He said, yeah, but I have another case, and I was so happy that you left the government because you were the best lawyer in the courtroom when you were prosecuting me. And I said, that makes me feel good, but how can I help you? And he told me about his case. And I got lucky because it was in a different, it wasn't in Florida, but the people had made some mistakes and I was able to get his case dismissed. And after that, he sent me a lot of his friends. I won't say they were members of a, the old, same organized crime family because we know those families don't exist. <laughs> but he sent me a, a number of people who he was affiliated with who had problems in Florida. And about once a month, he would call me up and say, Fred, what's going on with this one? What's going on with that one? And I would fill him in. And then there were two or three months I didn't hear from him. And I asked one of the clients I was representing, what happened to DB? He said, you don't want to know. I said, well, okay. Oh. And a few months later, they arrested John Gotti on his last indictment, the one he was convicted on. And it was based on a wiretap that they had in an apartment above the Ravenite Social Club in Manhattan. And on that wiretap, they hear Gotti telling Sammy the Bull Gravano to kill DiBernardo. And he, we know he did because Sammy the Bull became a government witness and testified that he killed DiBernardo. So I guess I didn't want to know what happened to him. No. Wow. Wow. But it's interesting the kind of people you meet. Uh, yeah, I would say so. And then 
you moved in into the does business law and commercial law and civil law seem a lot less stressful it's after- different <laughs> it's different in when i was doing federal criminal defense if a prosecutor gave you their word on something you relied on it if they told you something you knew it was true in civil law you really can't trust anybody people People just don't have the same integrity. Not everybody, but a lot of people don't have the same type of integrity. But I found I was doing white-collar criminal law at the time for a little while since I was in Miami and it was in the 80s. I was representing people who were importing various things such as pharmaceuticals and herbal products, marijuana and cocaine, into the United States. And those were different kinds of people. A lot of folks from Colombia and other parts of South America. But when I got into doing white collar defenses and I was representing businessmen, lawyers and doctors for various kinds of frauds, I realized eventually that civil cases were just the same kind of fraud cases, just the penalties were different. So it was an easy transition. And most of the lawyers or clients who were sending me cases, the clients were either in jail and out of the crime business or dead, or some of them were retired. And the lawyers who were referring me cases as I got older were retired or had passed away. My firm was sent, was using me to try cases for them where lawyers who represented themselves as trial lawyers but hadn't tried a lot of cases needed somebody to come in and at the last minute knew how to try cases. So I started trying civil cases and I liked it. And that's what I'm primarily doing now. I have a case I was just in Houston on a criminal case where my client was one of the main directors and purchases for the Venezuelan national oil company, Pedvesa. And he and his group of associates which was called El Grupo, the group was taking commissions on the goods that they purchased from American companies, close to a billion dollars worth of commissions between all of them. And when our government indicted the American suppliers, they turned and cooperated against the the Venezuelans who were taking bribes. And our government indicted my client and a whole lot of others for money laundering the bribes they were taking through U.S. and U.S.-related banks. So that's one of the few criminal cases I have left. Wow. Wow. That's a pretty big case. And you've had some crazy white-collar crime cases, securities crimes, penny stocks. Looks like, yeah, a lot of stuff over the years. What stands out the most to you? Which stories do you remember the most? One case I had, and this is in white collar, I was representing a group of young, fine young men known as the Outlaw Motorcycle Club. They were being charged with the federal RICO, that's Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organization, which means they were a group committing a whole lot of different crimes. And that was the longest trial I had. It lasted 14 months. In the Southern District of Florida, there were six defendants. Wow. That was one of the few cases I lost that 
the, the these fellows were charged with doing nice things like crucifying women and shooting them with spear guns and oh my God. things of that. And I don't usually do street-related type crimes, murders and things like that. But this was a case where these fellows were charged with that. And it was interesting because I was in my office and my assistant comes in and says, there's some strange looking guys in the lobby. They're wearing denim vests, t-shirts, jeans, and motorcycle boots. And the managing partner said, can you get them out of the lobby and into your office? So I interviewed them and they, I, they wanted me to represent one of the defendants, the national treasurer. And they had court appointed attorneys for all the others. And they had raffles in the outlaw motorcycle clubhouses around the country to raise money to pay my fee. I thought that was a little strange. Wow. But I've represented a lot of cases of, for instance, here in South Florida, we had a lot of the pill mills. So I've represented a lot of doctors who were charged there. Wow. I had one interesting case where I represented somebody who they called the great corrupter of Hialeah. Uh, and he was charged with uh, RICO offenses. But the government had previously made a deal with him and asked him to cooperate with them against the mayor of Hialeah, a guy named Martinez, which was interesting because Martinez was getting run, ready to run for Congress against the then U.S. attorney's wife. And he... They wanted my client to testify against the mayor of Hialeah. He eventually cooperated. He didn't know much about the mayor, but he knew about some other councilmen. And they eventually indicted the mayor. The indictment was dismissed. But they were unhappy with my client. So they breached his plea agreement and indicted him for racketeering. And the, the judge eventually dismissed the case for prosecutorial misconduct. It's one of the few I've seen where that happened. That's an, oh, wow. That's a roller coaster of case. Yeah. Um, it, it was a, a fun, interesting case. I had another case, a fellow named Ronaldo Ruiz, who was a Cuban who was smuggling cocaine through Cuba. And when he was arrested, he decided to cooperate with the government. And he told, our government, uh, the uh, agents who arrested him, that the guy who was helping him in Cuba get the, getting this done was a fellow named Raul Castro, Fidel's brother. And he gave the name of a general and two colonels who were following Raul's orders and helping him unload the planes when they came in from into Cuba from Colombia and putting the drugs onto fast boats to go to the United States. And I'll, for some reason, the DEA, I believe it was, felt they had to tell the State Department about that. And three days later, somehow the Castros found out. I don't say the State Department leaked, but somehow the Castros found out. And the general and the two colonels were killed. And my client eventually pled guilty and was sentenced to jail. And after four months in jail, he mysteriously died. Wow. That was a, an interesting case. And 
while we our government got Noriega, we never were able to prove that that the Castros were involved in smuggling. Wow. And yeah. these are crazy cases. And so now tell me a little bit more about your practice now. See, I mean, you do some white collar, but tell me about some of the cases well, that you handle now. I'm trying right now. I have a case in Detroit where my clients had about $50 million worth of commercial property in the United States. They never wanted things to be in their own name. So they put these properties in the U.S. in the name of a friend. They made him the trustee and they put the stock in their corporations in his name. But they had a written trust agreement where he acknowledged that it wasn't his property. He was just representing them as a trustee for their shares. He decided he was short of money. So on one of the properties, this one happened to be in Canada because they were all Canadian Iranians. He decided to take a mortgage on one of their properties and took out about a million dollars. And they eventually found out and they threatened him with prosecution. And he said, if you don't agree that I can keep the money, I'm going to ruin you. And they didn't agree. And he did start to ruin them. He went and claimed to actually own the properties in Detroit and caused them to go into default. And they were foreclosed on. And when our client tried to refinance them, because they owed $20 million on them and there was $35 million in equity, he filed a lawsuit in federal court asking the judge to determine that he owned the property. And no one would loan him money on it because the ownership was in dispute. Wow. Then another property in Atlanta, he caused the mortgage to go into default by not filing his financial statements. He was a guarantor. He formed a company, had money come in from Iran, which is a violation of the Iran Sanctions Act, used about $2 million that he brought in from Iran to buy out the mortgage and foreclosed on the mortgage and took over the property. So we're suing him and some bankers that were involved with him and we may be suing some lawyers who helped him, but it's a federal civil RICO case. Wow. It's using a criminal statute to sue civilly. That's and pretty intense. <laughs> That's a, it, man, people it, do it some is. crazy stuff. My clients went from having assets worth over $50 million that were producing, since they were commercial properties, they were producing a good cash flow and they had nice boats and planes and to having no cash flow and not being able to access any of their properties and struggling to pay lawyers to try to get the properties back. And that's what we're doing now. Wow. Jeez. So what do you do in your free time? <laughs> I mean, besides playing tennis and boating, so tell us about your practice now the law firm that you're with and where we can get in touch with you if someone needs i'm with a firm called shahady wartenberger in south florida fellas who my deal is i don't have to do any administration they asked did i want my name on the firm i said no i don't want to do any administration i just want to 
try cases, and that's what I do. My office is in Boca Raton. The firm has offices in Fort Lauderdale and Miami also. And basically, I live on airplanes. I have a case next month in San Francisco where this this is a criminal case where my client was originally charged with stealing $15 million from his partner in a hard money loan company. And now the government has offered us a plea to the misdemeanor count of petted larceny and repay a million dollars. And after two months, my client's record will be expunged. Wow. So, uh, it's a good result. That's a great result. Yeah, that's a great result. So we'll put a link to the website and put a link to your bio in there. And Man, this is an amazing history you have. Fred, thank you so much for being on True Law Stories. It's been a lot of fun hearing all these amazing stories. Thank you, and it's been fun chatting with you. That's fun, and thank you all for taking Fred on your journey. This has been On Garlic and True Law Stories. True Law Stories has been brought to you by VideoCaseStory.com. Testimonials stink. No one wants to watch a testimonial or read a case study. You need video case stories for your business. Go to videocasestory.com to learn more.